Welcome to Stories of Growth, a series of conversations with modern day business leaders who share their stories of growth and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm William Rowe, founder and CEO of Protein. I've been helping businesses grow for over 20 years and I've always been fascinated with the people behind these businesses, where they've come from and what drives them forward. Alex and Richard are co-founders of Camusi Lab, a design and technology studio based in London. We cover everything from the underrepresentation of black creators in the UK, as well as the challenges of launching a business in a recession. Be sure to check out their latest project, Decentralize, an interactive experience about black British art created in collaboration with Somerset House. This was recorded over Zoom, so apologies for the audio quality. Very excited to um, have Alex and Rich from Kamuzi uh, on the show. Uh, we're doing this virtually in this new COVID lockdown world, so uh, hopefully the quality and the and the broadband will maintain. Um, and excited to hear about what they've been up to uh, on some of the recent projects that we've been tracking um, over the last few years. So why don't we start with just a brief introduction? Um, maybe start with you, Alex, uh, in terms of a bit about uh, Kimuzi um, and you know some of the recent projects that some of the uh, listeners might have um, seen. Hi everyone, I'm Alex. I'm one of the co-founders um, of Kimuzi. Um, the studio was created in 2013. Um, we wanted to basically build, actually we actually started off making music. We were making music together as friends and we was inspired by is it the black? No, it's not the black hippies. It's black hippie. Richard, is it black hippie? What is it? Kendrick it Lamar. Hippies, yeah. yeah, black hippie. Yeah, black hippie. Yeah, Kendrick Lamar. Absol. Schoolboy. Schoolboy Q, J Rock. We were inspired by that. And then, so me, Richard, Akil, um, and another individual called Magic, we started making music and like spitting bars, rapping, just just having fun. And, and, and so we wanted to set up our own um, record label. So we actually did. We felt, um, and then we were interested in, and then we kind of were interested in how we can bring tech and music together. So we wanted to create like this sort of community, kind of similar to Patreon now, and we called it Kimuzi. And then we realized, or we realized we were probably good at building stuff, maybe pretty bad at maybe growing stuff or not understanding how to scale stuff and things like that. So we ended up in that whole Old Street area, Shoreditch. And eventually started making stuff for startups, realized that, okay, startups have loads of ideas, maybe not the most money in the world. And then eventually we kind of pivoted to what we kind of see ourselves as a as a strategic design partner for the rapidly changing world. Yeah. And our main goal really is just to help organizations become future fit by addressing the challenge of what's next. So that's kind of like maybe where our key source is all about really trying to help um yeah, companies figure out a lot of stuff. I think in the last couple of years, the studio has grown. Um, you know, I feel like we had, our, you know, like, I don't know, Will, you might have this where with Protein that you had a big break or you had like some client that gave you some sort of, like a big name client gave you some belief 
in you, even if it was like a smaller project. And we had that by the BBC R&D team where um, this is, you know, they, we kind of connected through Twitter. They asked us to come and give them show and tell to speak about what we're doing. Then they said, we have a project. Can you explore the future of news articles? with them so we did that project that project was it was really small it was like a five day six day project it was like the smallest amount of money back then the money was so sweet but now it's like oh yeah nobody can't even do anything but at that time it was like yo we've got this we're nervous we're happy we're i'm excited and that was kind of like the big break in a way where people began to understand this concept of maybe we were trying to use the words like innovation, like, you know, help you for the future, emerging technologies. We were just trying to combine all of these fancy, what I would call buzzwords into something as, you know, as we do as agencies or studios. Um, and that helped a lot. We also um, got, you know, offered a space to work out of us too, by, which was actually right across you know, um, mm-hmm. protein, actually protein. Yeah, yeah we right know the two guys. And so we, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Mills and Sinks um, gave us a space to work from, which also helped our growth. And so in the last couple of years, we've kind of, you know, 2019, we did a lot of AI stuff. We were kind of seen as the AI guys. And like 2020, we've kind of matured as a business where a lot of our work last year has either been working with local government or working in healthcare, and yeah, that's kind of, we've kind of been focused a lot in those areas um, in, in recent times. So um, that is, yeah, that's mm. me, Rich. And I waffled away. <laughs> I mean, that's a great intro and summary. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to the, the record label. I love failure stories in a positive lens, by the way. Um, but b- before we get to that, um, maybe there's a point to discuss around, and I know you're still on your journey and, you know, evolving as we all are and adjusting in these, you know, crazy times, especially being a small studio, but is there a common thread, uh, you know, through the projects that you work on? I mean, obviously technology underpins it all, but in terms of like an ideal brief or, you know, an ideal client. Yeah, Rich, introduce yourself as well. <laughs> as well as a little introduction. Right, that's, that's, that's true, though. I would have, I would have forgotten. Um, my name is Richard. I'm the managing director at Camusi. Um, That just means that I do a lot of the boring work uh, that my great co-founders don't want to do, um, such as the admin, the finance, um, tax, R&D, um, legal stuff, project management, you name it. I've done it. I'm a jack of all trades. Um, I describe myself as the generalist within the company. Um, answer your question specifically. Ideal plan or ideal brief? Um, honestly, I, I think that we say our, I, our ideal client is probably a client that has a lot of problems um, because then we're able to work on multiple projects without the effort of trying to get multiple clients, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Wave, for example, we're on our, our fifth project with Southern Council now, um, and that started from one project, and it's now gone to five. Um, so I would say that that's probably our ideal client, is having organisations that have multiple problems, because yeah. they're able to work on multiple issues. Yeah, I like, uh, I like Yeah, sorry, Rich. I was going to... Gonna... Yeah. I was going to touch on that. So yeah, that, that was a key thing. It was that element of, we realised it was like, how do you make clients that are seen as unsexy, sexy? In, in, in that element of, you know, 
Like, I would love if Nike, Adidas, or whoever, one of the, you know, brands hired us, but we're just making a brand which already has this perception of maybe sexy, more sexier. But if you look at it in the context of local government, where terms like design or, you know, technology or, you know, let's co-design, let's do things with the community are still foreign concepts where people go, what the heck is this? And everything you do, which maybe for all of us might make sense, you know, where we, you know, all chill in Shoreditch and Old Street just before, you know, the pandemic, but you go into, you know, you go into this world where they're like, what the heck are you lot doing? And so we kind of realised that maybe our source is coming from there, kind of really trying to engage in these massive beasts in a way and try to like bring that way of thinking, our sort of scrappiness, our sort of like interested in prototyping, solving problems, doing things in a different way, challenging perspectives. I think either way, how we look, how we appear, you know, is already a kind of unique, different experiences for a lot of people because we're not, you know, your carbon copy designers that you see around and that type of stuff. And so even that changes a lot in terms of how people approach us. And I think we just, we, we understood our energy and we wanted to bring that we wanted to bring that to the spaces that we're going to exist in. So, mm. um, yeah. So, is there a um, is there a common philosophy for uh, Kamuzi in terms of your approach? Uh, and you know, I mean, problems you know, that is where everything starts. But oh. I guess more in terms of your execution uh, and yeah. how you approach those problems, rather than you know finding and and I love your analogy about looking in the areas that aren't cool and you know making them cooler um i mean it's obviously not about oh. cool it's not always, oh. it's not about cool um <laughs> but it's um just maybe so, touch on that approach a bit i can i can touch on that so um our philosophy is what we call radicalism so akil describes this as a as an orientation or like proposing alternative um progressive choices so because when we use the red radical it was like some people are like, oh, don't use the red radical, you know, and that type of stuff. It can link to like anarchy and things like that. And if you're pitching that work to maybe traditional clients that maybe don't know the radical term and that type of stuff, they might, I don't know, be scared off. But we were like, nah, that's the whole purpose of it. It's like in a big, large organization where things have been done so much the same way for 50 years, the day you say to someone, all right, you've done this thing every day for 50 years, let's go left. That alone, that mindset, it's a lot of work. It isn't as easy. It's like a mental, I don't know, mind F. I don't know if I can find this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do what you want, Alex. Yeah. It's a a mind fuck in a way in terms of just how things go. So we always have like four points of radical creativity that um, that we see. And so the key thing was all about playfulness. So where it's about like having fun. So... That, that aspect of, like, we want to take people into, like, unknown territories. And by us being able to play, we're able to sort of face our fears. So, but you also have to create, like, that safe space for that to happen where people can play. And, you know, I realised this over time running ideation workshops that a lot of people don't play. I think, you know, I went to CSM, I went to design school, all you thought about design, ideation, this, 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 that. Things that were very natural things to me. And you go into an organization and you run an ideation workshop with people to think about how to solve problems. And people are like, oh, my God, this is the best thing I've ever done. And in my mind, I'm like, I don't even know if this is really good, you know. I don't know if this is really <laughs> helping people. 
But we try to encourage play and, you know, because really about embracing that fear. And fear sometimes takes people away from being in their true light. And obviously, if you're in an organization, there's loads of pressure for you. There's loads of expectations. You're probably in a place of seniority. You might feel like playing isn't something you can do. Um, the second thing that's what, that we like to focus on is experimentation. So that, that's that aspect of constantly trying out new stuff all the time, new methods. And you kind of need to be able to play, to be able to experiment. People need to feel comfortable to experiment. I, I, I once also used to think that experimenting would be everybody's dream because I think for me, that was my dream. But I realized, bruh, a lot of people don't have the chance to experiment just due to you know structures and things that maybe stop that from happening. Or maybe we get stuck on methods after a while and we just use the same thing because it generates the same it generates results. Why should we why should we break it? So we've always tried to engage um in that concept of experimentation. That's a very key thing in our work. Tech forward thinking. So I know you mentioned that before um earlier, Will, about that being um on the pin. But um we're always constantly trying to like pro um actively look towards the future to identify opportunities through tech. So it's not like maybe we have a particular technology bias that we might be focusing on. We like to see ourselves as a technology agnostic kind of studio and kind of to say, depending on the problem at hand, this technology might support this use case. Or even with the client, right? You know, you've got to know the limitations of what your clients can do and the capacity they can do in order for you to suggest stuff. But we are aware that our clients are coming to us to be able to embed, you know, technology in a way that would I don't know, offer a new service or take them to a new direction. One of the recent projects we did with Savit Council and their digital health team was about how um, could we use digital technologies to help um, residents in Savic improve their lifestyle behaviors. And what we did in that project, we went through engaging research, we engaged in co-design workshops, we did ideation, we did a number of prototypes. And what we came up to was like a mini site that had a that has a 30-day program. So every day you get a particular task. So you might get a seven-minute workout one day. The second day you might get like a when you're brushing your teeth, you should meditate while you brush your teeth. Try to understand mindfulness. On the third day, you would be like have a date night yeah, with like yeah. relative or partner or you know. Um, and the fourth day is like go get some fancy fruits. And so it was trying to be this healthy um, program that focuses on your body and mind. And so, where a lot of the things we had saw very much focus on the physical state of an individual rather than everything about that individual. You know, we could we embed AI technologies there? We probably could. Could we do this? We could. But it wouldn't... We knew that, personally, that Sabic weren't in the best way to facilitate an AI tool. Even if they wanted to, maybe it's something that comes down the line. So, for us, it was about trying to achieve that goal. And we realized, can we create, like, you know... I don't know, an interactive website which would allow people to do that and can we have a progress tracker so people can feel motivated to keep going. So that's tech forward thinking. And then the last one about it is, rig, um, is rigor. We try to be very rigorous. I can never pronounce this word correctly. It's always constantly trying to be as thorough and careful as possible and done carefully with a lot of attention to detail. And, you know, we're being hired to engage with what people call hard-to-reach communities. And we always believe that hard-to-reach communities don't exist. And I'm guessing with Protein doing a lot of, you know, engaging with these communities that people will probably say hard-to-reach, you probably realize this yourself, Will, that 
these communities are not hard to reach. People just do it and they just keep trying to do it in the same ways and not realize that to engage with certain communities, you need to change that. But once you're engaging with these communities, you know, they are maybe trusting of you. And, you know, and so one of the key things we try to do is we really try to bear our communities in mind. Um, you know, we try to also make sure that um, that everything we do is co-designed by the community. That's a rigorous thing for us. A, a lot of our projects does have a strong narrative and co-design. We've recently just worked with Citizens Advice on a co-creation guide in terms of um, how to, I don't even know, Richard, you can explain this more than I could, that particular project. Uh, yeah, so we've essentially designed a playbook um, that kind of takes Citizens Advice through um, a co-creation process. And that was um, because when we were having conversations with them, it seemed like they got the research stage really right. But when it actually came to ideating, there was a lack of interaction with people in the community. And so even taking into consideration COVID and how that's affected their services, but also people that may not be able to access it, their services online, whether they, maybe it's internet or just lack of digital accessibility, it was about saying, how do we create something that allows them to do that in the long run, now that we have to design for a new future? Um, so yeah, that was a great project. Um, Akil, our head of research, and strategy led that project. Mm. But he's, he's currently on paternity leave, so couldn't be here today. Yeah, so that's like our philosophy in the way how we think of those four pillars that we try to embody in every project. I think one of the hardest things maybe about being in, in, being in you know, isolation through all these lockdowns is maybe the play element hasn't been done because I think play is really nice when you can get people together, you can do a number of techniques that that encourage that playfulness and so trying to mimic that online where we're stuck in screens all day has been pretty hard i feel like that's the bit that i miss the most is the playfulness hasn't maybe hasn't flourished in a way that i would love it to flourish if you know we're yeah yeah and that's the, yeah and i think that's the challenge between the the online and the offline right uh and uh, you know, we were chatting before we started uh, with Rich about our space and how, uh, I mean, it's <laughs> there's nothing happening there because nothing's allowed to happen there. And it's a key part of you know, who we are, what we do. And I mean, as you say, about building relationships and nurturing communities. Um, and I wanted to touch on, well, the question is sort of how would you define community? Um, because it's actually our next topic of our dirty word series because it's a word often used but increasingly meaningless, <clears throat> um, hence the dirty words uh, theme. Um, uh, and, you know, there's an obvious definition when you talk about physical community and like local community, but would be interested to hear your thoughts of definition of what that looks like in a more of an online digital, digital world. I think for us in the context of community, right, you know, clients are hiring us to solve their problems. And our goal is constantly, we always say that we want to create products, services or experiences that would, um, was it best, connect, uh, best connect with the community you serve. That's like our like yeah, fancy taglines yeah. that we love to say, or every community stays connected. So I think the community in every project kind of differs depending on who the client wants to serve, you know. And what does that mean to serve the community? And that kind of means it's not only just about this individual person, 
and it's about a bunch of people who are interconnected and share a same goal. You know, depending if you know if it's Sabbath Council, the, the community in that case is the is the residents itself who are necessarily the Sabbath residents who pay rent, they pay service charge to the council, and the and the council has an obligation to look after them. That is, you know, that is facts, that is law, that is everything. So our main goal is how can we work how can we work with Sabak or teach Sabak how to better engage with their community? You know, how do you you and in a way sometimes you might have to break that relationship. You might have to break it down and build up a new relationship. You know, and, and as we play as roles designers, we're also just facilitators. I always say that it's like we have to be able to facilitate a space where for that to sort of work and flourish. And maybe the products and services are medium to doing that you know it's quite different you know if we had facebook as a client right that's going to be two plus billion users and it's like bruh that community might differ because everybody uses facebook for different purposes so it's like community differs dependent on you know the the reason why this this community connects together i i moved to my house in the second lockdown and i moved to this area but i can't necessarily have a community here and the reason why is because maybe because we're in COVID or because we're in this situation, I haven't maybe necessarily like seen my neighbors. It's been like fake smiles and stuff. Or like yesterday, my neighbor called me bro because I helped him move his Amazon delivery. And I was like, oh yeah, man, he called me bro. And that happened, <laughs> you know, but that felt nice, right? So it's like, you know, I felt, it's like, bro, and I'm like, okay, now next time I see him, I'm going to be like, yeah, you're right, bro. Yo, bro, yeah, bro. And then you, over time, he's not going to be somebody that I include in my community because I interact with him on a on, on a regular basis. And I probably have some sort of care or interest in his life because he's my neighbor. And like, you know, I would, I don't know. It's, it's community is such a, it's such an interesting one. And then how does that translate? that relationship which is obviously your neighbor physical tangible like how does that translate online because i'm going to use this as a segue into um you know web3 and you know decentralized ownership you know shared governance um and you know and it's not the next facebook because you know facebook isn't going anywhere anytime soon this is more about the new platforms that are enabling the sort of the the subcultures and the individual communities to flourish, um, and yeah, and yeah, it'd be just good to get your thoughts on how and where you see that evolving, and yeah, as a as an organisation, and as you say, a facilitator, uh, you know, start starting to connect some of those pieces. It's an interesting one. So I've been really interested in like what digital platforms exist to connect with communities and um there's obviously you've got the video calls type platforms and people doing video you've obviously got now the rise of clubhouse which has been mm-hmm. growing quite a lot in the black community especially in, in, in the uk um and it's even allowed me to connect to people in america that i probably would have never connected with before so there's this quality there you're creating these but it seems like on all these different platforms you all have a you have a it isn't like a shared profile it seems it seems like people exist in different ways and cost these platforms. Um, well, in, in, in terms of their individual identity or in terms yeah, of the community yeah, and yeah, platform's yeah. purpose? Because if you think of it, Clubhouse, for example, was like this very fresh app. Like people, for a period of time, it was like people were using it to like build their profile. 
in a way like hey I'm the number one expert in the world in this stuff you come speak to me and you know people who probably may be on another platform like Twitter nobody knows who you are Clubhouse once was like this free for you can build that you can exist and, and, and when you ask that question I thought about the first lockdown one of the things I did was I played computer games all the time I was playing PS4 I would meet my friends online we would either play GTA or FIFA and in GTA, you know, it's you play GTA Online. It's like its own universe. We're hanging out in our crew. And, you know, GTA is obviously a game that is unfortunately known for violence and loads of things like that. You know, you find your crew, you go find another crew. But you're on, you know, these are gaming headphones that I got on right now. And then, like, you're playing games, you're talking. Like, yeah, how's life, man? And I realized that, hold on, a life before COVID, I'll be I'll be saying I'm too busy to speak to you. Like, oh, guys, I've been busy, man. I'm sorry, man. Da, da, da. But now we're at home. So it's just like 11 o'clock. Go PS4, yeah? All right, cool. Go PS4. Okay, GTA's boring. We're going FIFA. We're playing. We're speaking. We're, we're engaging with each other. Obviously, we're not there. But for that moment of time, our sensory experiences are being engaged. They're being fulfilled. They're being met. And you're enjoying. So I think there's a way for technology to maybe help engage all the senses like that sensory feeling that we get that chemical reaction that we get when we're around people because i have no idea when we're going to leave lockdown and so it's like mm. in an online community it's like how do we engage all of those sensory experiences that maybe we do in in person i don't know if that's a good thing you know but that's kind of what i think about it's like how how that would work um, in a way. Mm. No, it's interesting. And and similarly, something that we've been tracking in terms of, I mean, these online worlds, digital worlds, new world, um, that uh, you, know, you look and appreciate in an entirely different way when you're <laughs> effectively restricted from entering you know, the real world. Um, I mean, literally. So, you know, it, it's totally yeah. understandable why Animal Crossing or any of the, the, the new virtual worlds are you know, increasing in importance. And, and, you know, that also dovetails coming back into more of your mindfulness and, you know, mental health, uh, you know, impacts that this lockdown has, has created. Um, and, you know, it's still unproven and still, you know, fully researched, but, you know, really having that as a release um you know to combat loneliness or to really support uh, you know people who are a bit you know, just feel disconnected um you know that to me is of it's got to be a good thing uh, it, i think you, know, you still start to question if it gets too much or it gets too extreme you know it's it's benefit but um uh, yeah i think that that approach and again why I'm, I'm i'm curious to hear your guys viewpoints on it uh and as i said in terms of facilitating that for people who don't know that world or understand that world or really it's not about respecting that world but you know just getting that world um and and that's just that's one of education it's like mm. yeah this is what it is but this is actually why it's good for you um mm -hmm. And a couple of projects that I um, wanted to touch on, and maybe this is, again, a dovetail into your AI uh, world um, around Carebot and also your the project for the feminist internet. Um, yeah. And I met those guys actually uh, 
I, actually, I think just after they, they, they formed, I, was, I did a, a brief workshop down at um, UCL. And yeah. um, I mean, such a great concept and you know, crew, effectively. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear your, I guess, sort of maybe an introduction to, to both those projects. And, and I think from that, maybe some of the lessons learned Mm. Uh, through it and therefore you know where they are now i guess yeah where where they're going so let's go for the voice ai bots which i think is the one you're talking about um so that was an interesting time that is 2018 you know communities in the stage of kind of like um interesting place of growth you know we've just done bbc um you know and, and at the time, well, I still call myself a creative technologist. For many years before that, you know, the creative technologist term came from the advertising world, where it was like somebody who understands creative and technology. For those who don't understand that, you would just, it, this concept that if you have a creative brain and you have a tech brain, there are two separate parts of the brain where I don't believe in that. I kind of see technology as just a toolkit that I use to express myself creatively. So I was calling myself a creative technologist and, um, I actually applied for uh, an AI residency. I didn't get it, but they asked me to be a mentor on the residency. I was like, oh, I didn't get it, but I got to be a mentor. I was like, all right, fair. I'll take the opportunity. (laughs) But I got introduced to um, Charlotte, Gigi, and Connor, who are, I mean, there's a number of co-founders of the Feminist Internet, but those are the three that I've engaged with for most of uh, my time. And they had this goal, you know, the Feminist Internet, for those who don't understand it, is... um, I say an organization that was spun, um, spun out of University of Arts London. You know, they center a lot of their work in for women um, and um, those who identify non-binary and non-gender conforming. And so the goal is how do you create an equitable internet where everybody can exist fairly and kind of have safety and, you know, and, and, and those particular things. And so the Feminist Internet for a period of time had done a number of workshops. That was their goal. They always did workshops really cool workshops and then buy. This time around, the goal of the Feminist Internet was how can we embed technology into the part of this process and how can we make this work? And so um, supported by the University of Arts London, we were able to run a program called Designing the Feminist Alexa. Um, The reason why Alexa was the proxy for this project was at the time there was a lot of um, research done um, about how if you spoke to a particular, if you spoke to voice assistants and you said to them particular, you know, phrases of a sexual nature, these voice assistants weren't designed with maybe responses that could be like, please stop that, don't say that, that's offensive. What would happen is that the, the, the voice assistants kind of response kind of encouraged those behaviors anyway. And that, you know, is very, that's very toxic. You know, that kind of also sort of, um, also kind of you can say echoes this the, you know the way how women are objectified in today's society and how you look at an object and you speak to an object in that particular way so alexa was the proxy and the goal for this particular project is that we taught 40 students um and we turned them into like voice interface designers and we ran like intensive three-day workshops and the goal was to imagine and prototype um voice assistants that will need a meaningful human need and embody feminist value. So even that key term, feminist, you know, when we look at the word feminism and how that embeds into technology design, it is about the principles of feminism, right? And, and there's been a lot of feminist scholars who've explored 
you know, techno feminism or how we embody feminist principles in um, in product design and product development. So when you say a feminist Alexa, it isn't maybe necessarily these voice assistants that are like, hey, I'm a feminist. It's no, these voice assistants have been created with these feminist principles. Mm-hmm. So just to clarify that for anybody trying to understand that. So, you know, we did this workshops, we taught people, um, we, you know, I had to come up with ways on how we can prototype these voices, um, intelligent um, AI systems, and then yeah, we we prototyped that, we presented that, and at the time I was quite frustrated with the project, <laughs> just because I was trying to create things on 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 Amazon Alexa, and personally for me, I would have wanted to, if I had more time at that time, I would have maybe created more custom. The good thing about that project though is that it was quite different from what everybody had seen. You know, I'm always interested if people even understood what that project was meant to mean. But what that led to actually was um, EY came across that project. They're very interested in it. They have this large conference um, called Innovation Realized. I think it's Innovation Realized. Yes. And it was about this time, the big theme at this particular time, this is like 2019. So a lot of the narratives was about like bias in AI systems, AI and then, you know, the ethical stuff. There was just you know, loads of buzzwords at that time. So what happened was that work that we did with Feminist um, Internet was then, you know, EY asked the Feminist Internet us again to create something that could exist in this conference. So they initially wanted a voice assistant. One of the challenging things of voice assistants in terms of the technology right now is that if you're in a large place like a conference, that voice assistant might struggle to detect who's saying what unless you maybe create an enclosed space where people exist in and you kind of block out the noise and so this person can speak to this voice assistant and that type of stuff. Because of the way how the project came, the project came, we had like eight days to deliver this, we created a chatbot called Fexa. So Fexa became this chatbot. I basically created a chatbot library. I needed to find a way how to create chatbots like on, on, like on demand, basically. And so we created um, Fexa. So Fexa is your feminist guide to AI bias. It's um, FX, and I don't even know, is it apostrophe, which it was it? I think it's FX apostrophe A. Yeah, yeah. Something F- like that, yeah. F apostrophe XA, yeah, Fexa. That's it. Um, and Fexa, what Fexa does is Fexa never says I. So if you use the Fexa experience, it never says I. Um, we did this because of people have emotional connection to bots. And people see bots as he, she, they, and and and, and you know you give you you give these bots a gender. So we kind of wanted to remove away just that emotional attachments that people have, and let people know that Fexel is a bot. This is an example to show how we can design AI products that, um, you know, because Fexel doesn't have a consciousness; it's just a chatbot. Um, Fexel tried to. Um, what Fexel tries to do is teach you about where bias can occur in three areas. So search engines um, and how and hiring algorithms and also if you had a particular accent and you wanted to speak to voice assistant. And so it takes you on a journey and you have a number of pathways and then it gives you suggestions on what people can do about AI bias, especially because this conference had a lot of C-level executives who maybe they don't get involved in this conversation. So we created something like that to educate them. That kind of span off into a lot of projects where people, for that 2019 time, it almost felt like we were the chatbot agency because we made so much <laughs> for so much. Um, Rich is laughing. Um, but then now, which takes me into Carebot, um, 
Kebab, I, I really love that project. I worked with my um my 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 good friend Caroline Cinders. Um she's amazing. She's a designer, artist and researcher. And she's Caroline. And she's been exploring um, you know, she's been exploring this era of machine learning and how we could design machine learning products and services that are more equitable and also more safer. And she had this um residency at a particular museum in Germany. And um, she wanted to collaborate. And she's been exploring for a period of time online harassment and also exploring how online social networks, ha have how they've been designed and often how they allow for harassment. However, what happens is if somebody is unfortunately online harassed, there's no really a way in terms of, there's not like guidance or like advice on how you could perhaps report that or what support exists for online harassment victims. So we decided to create this chatbot which would respond to questions um, and also a, for, for a victim of online harassment, but also try to provide like best practices, guides, and what to do. We, we kind of saw it as an artistic intervention because when, you know, one of the things dangerous as well is like, which I mentioned about the Fexel project, I don't want it to, I don't want people to have an emotional attachment to bots. They're bots, they're designed to do something, you know. This isn't like um, Batman and, 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 and Alfred. Actually, I was going to Iron Man and Jarvis in a way. That's what I, um, but that whole thing, it's meant to be an artistic intervention. Also showing exactly how painful on uncaring the policies and procedures are for victims when we, with this type of stuff. So I literally just brought that to life while Caroline was like the initial vision for this. Um, one of the hardest things about this project was we, I think we did this like early 2020. So we didn't have an opportunity to like, because one of the things we wanted to do was to in, go engage with the community, go engage, do some workshops with this care bot, have more conversation around online harassment. Um, also, can we also look at other areas of harassment and abuse and how can technology best help support people but also how do we also partner with these organizations that already offer these services that maybe are most times might be cash strapped or maybe don't have you know a tech design team in-house that could support them in a way but yeah the pandemic kind of has slowed down progress but that's an area that we're still interested in so yeah, hopefully that is my long explanations on those projects. And please ask for Weibo. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And it's always good to hear uh, the stories behind these projects because, you know, as a end user or uh, on, if you're just researching it, you know, you always see the final product rather than the, the road that it took to get there. Um, and, you yeah. know, you touched on a number of important uh, you know, both technology, but you know, human truths uh, about what is happening, and you know how technology can help you know change perceptions. Um, and I, I didn't yeah. know about the EY, and you know that's that's awesome. You're starting from a collaboration with the feminist internet at you know University Arts London, and you're ending up at a bunch of C-suite folks. I'm I'm assuming straight white. C-suite folks um, uh, Ernest, at an Ernest and Young, uh, you know, conference, and uh, you know that you know, gives, you know, I guess, coming back to your philosophy and your purpose, you know, a real guidance as to the types of projects that resonate, and you know, actually, you know, I, I, I actually move, move move things forward in terms of 
a progressive thinking or or you know changing people's approach or uh or or, or even just belief uh on on some of these tools with those projects there they were fun projects but they're always like our fun projects the ones that we have the most experimental are like the most least paid projects out of all of them but mm. they're fun i think and it's all it's always isn't interesting. that it isn't that the 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 basic lesson of business um <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the fun doesn't pay yeah so and so it's, it's always interesting because those are the projects that people maybe will be attracted to and those type of yeah. stuff those are the projects that people kind of like people bring that up all the time and i'm like oh swear down yeah 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 i didn't know this project resonated because in my mind i'm like bruh we did that shit in eight days bruh <laughs> Some of the like smallest projects have had the largest impact. And we're yeah. just like, yeah, yeah, we did this in a couple of days. We were yeah. burnt out. Oh my we're burnt God. out after, we we're finished, we everything, you know, and, and that type of stuff. And so, yeah, I think 2020 did take away those fun projects. There was opportunities to do more of those type of fun projects. One one of the ones I'm currently working now is um, called Rakeem Octavia, which is with um, Google Arts and Culture. Um, it came out of my um, residency. I was doing a residency with Google AI on like training a machine learning model on rap. And so I was interested in how like just playing around with it. Like I was there's a project called Please Feed the Lions by, you know, S. Devlin. S. Devlin is a famous set designer, stage designer for anybody who's interested in um, S. Devlin. Uh, she did a formation set for Beyonce. So that's one example of how amazing she is. Um, and she did this project into Firewood Square where people can go up to this lion and you can type in a word and you could create a poem, and it creates this collective poem. Um, the, the machine learning AI, it was taught on 19th century poetry. And I was like, oh, it's kind of dead still. I want to train it on rap. That's generally the energy I had. I just want to train it on rap. And I just want to bring it out and see how people play with it. So we're still doing a lot of these experiments or things that give us that creative freedom to have fun while doing the more serious type of work because we understand as a student, as an agency, if you want to grow this thing, you know, the serious type of work pays the bills and, you know, allow you to grow and invest and do all of these things. Where mm-hmm. the fun work, maybe it's the work that gets you all the fame and everybody wants to talk to you. So 2020 kind of took that out of the year. We didn't really have that much <laughs> fun work. We had loads of serious work and I'm not... I'm grateful for all the serious work we had because that allowed the studio to survive and we had our strongest years of business and all of these things there. We're also working with the Media Network, which is, um, which is, I don't know if you want to explain that project. Just to explain some, uh, of more, the, some of more of the experiments we are doing this year that are related, similar to this type of work. Sorry, Rich. So um, I know that with the, the Media Network, the brief is very fluid. Um, we actually had a conversation last week where they were like, you know what, we don't actually mind if you change the brief. Um, but I think initially what we wanted to do was um, look, essentially look at people's, particularly Black people's experience of discrimination in the system and see if we could somehow use technology to create accountability frameworks. Um, and that's because when it comes to a lot of people's experiences, when it comes to like racism and discrimination, it seems like there's this huge glass ceiling in terms of keeping the government accountable and so that's kind of an experiment that we're potentially working on but um i know that akil's leading that and he's extremely creative and that brief might change 
he might call us at 11 pm today to say he's got another idea. So, <laughs> you want to explain who the media network is as well, just for those as well? Ooh, I think you know more about the media network, but I know that the media network was um, set up by the founder of eBay. And so, I think as a foundation, one of their aims is to kind of like promote the responsible use of technology. So they have frameworks such as the ethical OS, um, which is essentially a framework that one can look at while developing technology or AI. And it allows you to ask questions about the impact that your technology might have. Um, so yeah, they're really interesting. Um, that I've, I think we're really going to enjoy working with them. Um, we pitched for a brief uh, late 2019, which we didn't get. Um, but because of the pandemic, we were extremely grateful that we didn't get that piece of work because I think it would have burnt, burnt us the fuck out. And I don't even swear. So know that when I swear, I, I'm saying it with ultimate vim, but yeah. yeah. Um, we're grateful that that relationship has actually come full circle and we're working on an, a, an experiment that they actually see as an experiment as opposed yeah. to being handed a brief. Yeah, so yeah, so we're doing a lot more, more stuff in our way to scale um as well so that's a very key thing as well with the studio was to always constantly keep experimenting because that was the reason why we started we started because we realized we had no money we had no social capital so we thought if we build stuff for other people we would be able to have the financial capital and the social capital to be able to build our ideas and maybe if we needed the support networks of you know the right people and stuff then those things can come to life so that's always kind of been the vision behind us and how we think yeah, and how no, we see stuff. I also Sorry, think, Rich, carry on. Um, so um, I was thinking about this the other day, but I also think that one of the reasons why we're so good at community engagement is the fact that, that we would, we'd probably say that we came from having low social capital. So in many ways, we've had to attain that. But we've come from an area or areas where people classified as hard-to-reach communities are people that mm. we've grown up around. And so even just communicating or having those conversations or engaging with those people to us is normal. Mm. If I was in an estate and you said, and, and I was lost, and there's like five guys chilling on the block, I don't have any issues with them. I know that I can walk to them and be like, yo, bro, do you know where this is? Whereas someone else might look at that situation mm. differently. So I definitely think where we've come from, um, Alex grew up in Peckham. I grew up 10 minutes from Alex in Campbell. Akil grew up in Brixton. Has definitely helped us in our work today because we're engaging with those same communities. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's always the right way, right? In terms of that engagement and that interactions. And, I mean, really interesting to hear that ethical OS, um, uh, you know, backbone of the next project you're working with, Media Networks, and, uh, you know, brings me on to, I guess, sort of the final project but we, before we talk about some of your personal backgrounds um, around the decentralized archive. And um, just good to get mm. your, I mean, I think overview, but again, I, um, I'm just always interested to hear about the outcomes um, in terms of what this enables or what impact these projects have actually uh, achieved. So, yeah, good to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, that's fine. So the Decentralized Archive is a particular project. So when, when we moved to Somerset House, in 2019, um, we are part of the, we're a Somerset House um, resident, and the residency is, you know, a program where you have space in Somerset House Studios at an affordable rent, um, which is quite important for us, because I think at the time, we were three people, uh, now the team's kind of grown quite a bit. Um, 
And so we moved there and one of the curators hit us up and said, look, Somerset House wants to create this exhibition in 2020. I think it was about ancestry, ancestors because Somerset House in British history was once a place where all deaths, birth and marriages were originally Yeah. Recorded. Okay, so, I didn't know that. And yeah. Somerset House. Yeah, so Somerset House obviously is now an art centre. You know, it's, you know, there's loads of things that go in there. And so they asked us to create a digital experience. At the time, we had just come off um, working with um, BNA um, on the Not a School 2019 um, sort of project in um, Samson's um, Not a Shop store. I think it's Not a Shop, I don't know. Not, not a store in, in King's Cross. And um, we were very much inspired of being able to work with young people and co-design things with them, because that's what we kind of did when we worked with Samsung and BNA, was we did a lot of co-design workshops on circular design and um, futures. Sustainability. And sustainability. Yeah. yeah, we just kind of did like quite a lot. So we were very much in that energy of like, yeah, we love to work with young people. So we basically said to Somerset House, look, can we get like six young people? Can we recruit them? Can we teach them how to be an artist collective slash design studio? where we teach them our process and the way we think. We give them this brief, they go away, they do research, they they unpack the history of Somerset House, and then they ideate on something, and then we, we'll build it and bring it to life. What happened was, the project must happened in 2020, COVID hit, and then I let Richard explain this part, because I know Richard did a lot of the groundwork. <laughs> with, with April Brown, who's also um, based at Somerset House. So Richard, I'll let you. Yeah, shout out to April um producer at Somerset House but yeah initially it was supposed to be about um births deaths and marriages and then COVID hit so the project got postponed for a bit um and then I think George Floyd I think it was that May 2020 um but I think that yeah but that kind of changed the trajectory that Somerset House were on and so um we then had more discussions and we said and, and I think the idea then came to like how could we redesign the narrative of Somerset House in a way that reflects Black British history. And so he said, cool, we're going to bring these six young creatives in and we're going to take them through the, the, the community process. And yes, we've got this as a foundation, but they're actually going to come up with the idea. And so they've essentially come up with the decentralised idea. We're more so just facilitating yeah. that creativity with our skills. So the decentralised archive was, is there basically a space, a centre, Somerset House as this, as this um, building, this this entity, this archival this place of archival history, but the decentralized um, is a is a space where you know young people or people basically the young the young producers have picked a number of objects related to Black British history, and in this archive, what people would be able to do is to find out what these objects are, their importance, their prominence, why they've been added to this archive. And then people would be able to use these objects to create artworks with them. And what the whole goal is with, we're going to archive these art pieces into this like gallery space. So it becomes this decentralized archive. A lot of the times growing up in school, I was taught that black people came here in the Rinrush generation. That's how I was raised. Black people came through the Rinrush and that's when black people first came. However, if you look back in history, that's not the case. Mm. Even a Nelson Cullum in Trafalgar Square, they are black and Asian fighters who fought for the British Empire. And you can kind of see, you can see it, like they're carved into the, like, Nelson Cullum in that case. So even before that, there was, like, communities of black people 
and people from and, and, and Asian communities who in the 1700s, 1800s lived in the UK and like had parties. They, they lived, they had a community. And so the key thing about this project is really to educate people about that history, but also invite people to create new histories. So it's a very artistic um, project that's very fun. Um, Pinterest is also supporting this project as well. Richard, I don't know if you want to communicate what Pinterest involvement is. Yeah, so so I know that, um, if I'm correct, I think during ideation, um, at at the start of the project, Pinterest came, like, spontaneously and were like, yeah, we love this and we want to support. So um, I know that the young producers have been using Pinterest as kind of, like, a foundation for inspiration. So a lot of the kind of, like, images or the inspiration that they've got throughout the process of the project, they've put on Pinterest boards. um, And they've, they've also put... Um, some money into the project that's been helped to pay the young producers. Um, all the young producers are being paid for their time, just to mention that. Um, so, yeah, shout out to Pinterest, shout out to Art Fund, who also funded the project, and shout out to Somerset House. It's always love. So, is this, is it live yet? No, 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 no. Um, it won't be no. live to like March. So, the plan is to launch it in March. Okay. It should have been launched now, but one of the hardest things, like I said, is that playfulness trying to get five or six young people who don't know each other to exist in the online world might not be... That's one thing we learned. It's like, you know, we we did actually manage to run some socially distanced workshops initially. I think yeah. just that second lockdown in November. So we did, like, Sunset House is a big building and it has big space. And so we did run, like, socially distant workshops, which felt like a school exam in a way. <laughs> and that type of stuff. But... um yeah so but one of the hardest things was like with it's so yeah so it was just it's just quite hard to like really manage this and we actually were trying to launch this with a launch event that kept getting postponed mm. each impending lockdown so our goal is for the project to be launched in march um and it should be really fun i also you know that's going to be a really cool project to share and further you know that like shows the experimentalness, the coolness, or the things that we embody in our way and thinking. So, yeah, that was a really fun project in a way. So, yeah. Yeah, no, looking forward to seeing that coming out. And I think that, I mean, moving on, and you touched on it briefly in terms of, um, you know, the origins of, uh, you know, the first settlers um, and what people think <laughs> the history was, but what the actual history is. Um, maybe just touching a bit on your personal stories as to, uh, you know, your your family set up or, you know, your, your roots um, and really how that has shaped and defined who you are and, and, and what you're now doing. Grew up in Peckham, um, kind of lived in care for a while, um, um, lived with family in and out. I didn't really have like a, the most settled um, childhood experience. Um, you know, for various reasons, but which kind of you you are exposed to, you know, a world of so much different stuff. And I think when I kind of got to 16, I kind of had this theory in my head. It was like, I, I you know, there's this, there's this stuff that's very raw, where it's like your boys are doing what they need to do to get by. You know, I, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship has been something I've been exposed to from early. You know, I'm not going to explain how it was exposed to me, but it's been exposed to me from early in, in interesting ways and measures. You know, those interesting ways and measures, you know, you know, unfortunately, the, you know, the criminal justice system 
locks you up and probably doesn't spend time to harness that energy to make you thrive. You know, people did what they needed to do and, and that's what we thought you needed to do to survive. And But there's an energy there. There's a there's an energy, there's a risk appetite, there's a creativity, there's a wittiness, yeah, that's like this potential talent that just needed the space to be harnessed, to flourish. And, you know, fortunately, you know, life doesn't accommodate you, you know, once you've been, you've offended. Um, but at that time in my head, it was like, um, you know, I, I'm going to try to do some legitimate ideas. And I met Richard off Facebook when we was in year yeah. 10. And Richard made some video on Facebook. And I thought, yo, bro, your, your videos are really cool. Let's be friends. Um, I knew Richard to be like this like hustler guy that was like selling everything known to the world on eBay and things like that. So um, I would just see Richard from time to time. We would talk. Then one time when I think we were like 18, we used to meet every Thursday to talk yeah. about ideas and what business ideas could we necessarily do. So we would meet in a subway or in Victoria at 4 p.m. It was like a regular occurrence. And, mm -hmm. and we would talk um, about like business ideas. We tried to get involved in a number of business ideas with our friends, like e-commerce websites. Richard was selling weave once. He was selling hair. Yeah, the hair extensions. Hair extensions yeah. via BBM. I was quite a well-known person, so I used to broadcast Richard's businesses on BBM. You know, shout out to AliExpress. You ordered from AliExpress. And so we did a lot of those um, interesting um, things. Where we really kind of maybe took stuff a bit serious was this record label. But I'm going to let Richard explain his background and then we can maybe go into that part there. Um, yeah, so yeah, I grew up in, in Camberwell, um, like literally opposite the um, Camberwell College of Arts. Um, so I was about 10 minutes from Alex. Um, my mum was born over here, went to Nigeria, um, came back. My dad was born in Nigeria, so... Yeah, I've um, grew up in a like very a somewhat strict Nigerian family. I went to boarding school in Nigeria when I was ten for three years, um, which was uh, a really, 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 really interesting experience, which we could probably talk about later. Um, but when I got to college, um, there were I, I studied um, business, sociology, and ICT, and I used to go into there was a teacher called Michael. We had politics classes, um, and when I got into those classes, it was like my eyes opened up because one of my sociology teachers, she was like a hippie. So her, pers her perspective, she was a hippie in the 60s. So her perspective on the world was really interesting. But I just, I, I remember just thinking to myself, shit, the world is actually a fucked up place. Um, and from there, I always wanted to change the world. So I see community as this vehicle um, that helps me to maybe approach problems that exist in the world and potentially solve them. Um, but yeah, that's my background. Um, I never wanted to do illegal stuff. I'm a mum's only son. I know I'd be pissed if I did anything when I went to jail. So it was like, what else can I sell to make <laughs> me money? So I sold like everything. I sold hair extensions. I sold Blackberries. I sold PS2s, PS3s. You name it, I've made a flip. Um, but yeah, that's where kind of like the hustleism mentality started. It started from not necessarily coming from the wealthiest background and again going to college and realizing shit we live in a capitalistic world right money if we're keeping it a buck money is a huge determinant of your life experiences and your chances in society so and um a kill came from brixton 
um, and we met a kill. We met. We actually started the business before we met a kill, and then we met a kill. And 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 one of the key things I wish he was here, but he's also he just recently became a dad. So big up, all black. Congrats. Um, but, we met, um, but we met a kill, and then we were like, right, a kill has so much different qualities than we had. You know, he 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 was very good. A kill is very good at navigating spaces. He's very good at speaking his mind, which we probably wasn't. We were very nervous at the time, especially existed in new spaces. Um, we didn't know. And so Kill brought a quality to us that we didn't have. And so I'm, I don't even, I cannot remember now how, how the rationale, it was like, oh, Rich, I think we should get a Kill to jump on board of us, you know. I don't remember how we did it. When we were, when we were running the studio, I think he came to rent the studio for some time. So we're all cramped up and the Kill's there. And we met Akil, we just started vibes in. And I think I was having a conversation with Alex after, and I was like, you know what? If we bring in Akil, there's four of us. It's 25%. Like, this is a really nice setup. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. So it was a very, very, very spontaneous decision. But it's led to where we are now, so I guess it was the yeah, right decision. And bear in mind, we were like 18, 19 at the time. So yeah, it, teenagers. Was, yeah, it was teenagers. So it was just a very naive, naive vibes in a way. And... Here we are. There you go. There are the lessons you learned. Tell me, tell me briefly about the record label and its uh, its arrival and its departure, and I guess now how that's now translated into you making rap bots. It sounds like with your new project. Um. So the record label started off as uh, Matchet, who was um, you know the fourth co-founder, but um, left in 2015, and Matchet had the studio. And I said to Richard, uh, Matchett, do you want to do you want to rent out your studios? So we called it Pure Skills Records, um, and we rented out the recording studio to people to come use. And then we also wanted to have a record label um, as well. You know, we didn't really know what we were doing. It was just fun. It was just really fun. So we we got like we signed one of we signed one of our friends. We signed like some artists um, who had like large, big numbers on YouTube. Um, and we thought, yeah, we're going to make it. You know, we pay for recording setup. We, we learned about radio plugin, how to pay for radio plugin. We did everything, music video, you name it. We did everything. Mm-hmm. That shit sold. We made 72 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I think we spent like, Four thousand pounds or something like that. We spent a lot of money, fam. And we we're like, it was nineteen. It was the shittest return ever. It was so bad, fam. <laughs> it was actually, it was actually so bad, yeah. That we we laughed. We were that sad that we laughed at what happened. But we learned a lot of lessons, though. A lot mm. of things were messy. The radio plugin wasn't done on time. Um, it was quite rushed. So we sort of, you know, we sort of, the lessons we probably learned from it, right, was, and one of the hardest things was, that was 2012, 2013. Rap, UK rap as we know it now, began to grow from 2014. So we could have stuck it out. We could have waited. We could have pursued. And maybe in 2014, we would have found the right thing and we'd have probably just done, we probably would have just done well. Who knows? I always think about that a lot of times. Like, oh, shit. Should have stayed? Would we have done well? Would I have, would I have been able to convince Stormzy? Whatever, like those type of things. Because, you know, but the love of technology kind of just really attracted us to that. So, yeah. So we failed because we made $72 and we thought, 
we actually did some really cool stuff at that time. We partnered up with The Orchard, which is now owned by Sony Music, to do some interesting stuff. We, um, we almost even got a publishing deal. I remember that. We almost got a publishing deal, but that fell through. So we gave up on the record label. Um, but a lot of the times, even then with the record label, we used to talk a lot about how technology is going to change the music industry. Because back in 2012, 2013, no record label wanted to wanted now we have streams contribute to the charts that was not a thing then record label saw spotify twitter facebook all of these stuff as like anti us you don't like us and we were trying to be very big on like how to talk about um that and i think the record label 300 in america kind of embodied those tech principles that's how it was founded by leo cohen and i can't remember who else and google ventures gave them five mil and their whole strategy was basically finding the biggest artists on social media and then using data and social media and all these different technology tactics to basically maximize potential. Those are the ideas we had because I was inspired by um, Troll Parker, who happened to be the manager of Lady Gaga at the time, and Scooter Braun, who's the manager of... Um, what's my man's name? Justin, Justin Bieber. Justin yeah. Bieber. And they were very big on that tech and I was just inspired and trying to put that hair. But one of the key things I think we spent for a period of time was that we was always maybe a bit too ahead of the curve. So we're saying things, but nobody's getting it. And that was, yeah. Yeah, that that's, that's yeah. That's the sad thing of those times. So we were broke. <laughs> but you learn some lessons, which is where the value comes, right? Um, one final question before we wrap it up. And I think... Uh, maybe it touches on a few areas, uh, you know, throughout our, um, you know, our conversation. Um, and there's what I think is now called the creator economy or the passion economy. And, you know, where blockchain and, you know, crypto is arriving for, you know, creators, um, whether that's NFTs, non-fungible, you know, tokens, you know, in terms of the artists or, you know, the musicians coming in and, you know, the technology is now enabling that, I mean, in a marketing term, direct to consumer uh, and completely decentralizing, I mean, the whole ecosystem of, I mean, the music industry, the art and I mean, the creative industry as a whole. And it's new, I know, like very new in terms of NFTs. Um, but it would be good, yeah, just to get your thoughts on w how you see that evolving and uh, you know where yeah where that's going so um nft art and and then it's been something that i've been exposed to recently um i think obviously it's you know because of people people um you know you know known 3d artist did really well with his nft he made like 3.5 mil off an auction um, you know, and, and, it, and what it shows to that's obviously created this hype. You know, every time I'm on Clubhouse, somebody's talking about NFT art, especially in the States. I don't think we've really jumped on the wave that well in the UK just yet. Um, but one thing I've realized is that the people who successfully do well in NFT art are people who've been building their audience for a long period of time, which I think, you know, kind of makes sense. I feel like it's a wonderful platform because it maybe it, it democratizes access, but blockchain. This, you could also debate and say, does it really democratize access? Because you still need to be able to be technically competent to be able to understand this stuff, to be able to access these things. Yeah. But what, but what it does do is it. I think maybe the key, in my head, the key stuff it seems is 
that ownership, right? You can own something that nobody else can replicate. It's yours. And then I think maybe in, in, in the art world, that is that digital art couldn't sell before because it was A, how do you maintain digital art? That was always the questions. You couldn't maintain that. B, the art world's market price or market value for a, a piece of artwork is based on this concept that you're buying a real Picasso painting, Basquiat thing. Nobody else has this. All right, cool. We're going to auction this, the stuff goes up. Maybe with digital art, where everybody can have it, can own it, the value wasn't there. There was no appreciation in that way. And I think with NFT, the key thing is that value of you own this and this is only yours. So you can now have those particular stuff. So I'm, I'm very interested in seeing what could happen. You know, rest in peace to Nipsey Hussle. You know, when he had his album that he sold for $100, you know, that would have been interesting to see an NFT experiment with Nipsey Hussle selling $400. Or the Wu-Tang one where they released only one album. It was a gold album, something like that, and it was only for a mil. I can't even remember how much they sold it for. And then that pharmaceutical kind of um, waste man bought the thing. And I don't know, I think he got arrested, sent to jail, and I think they took off him. I can't remember. But Yeah, that's exactly so, what happened. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see with, like, with artists and how they do that because, you know, but that would give them power, ownership, that direct-to-consumer, it brings power and stuff. I think the challenge is, is that I don't know if people who are getting into the NFT art, do collectors understand what they're getting into and do artists understand what they're getting into? So I think there needs to be more education on the collector side, also education on the artist side, you know, because this will obviously... This might change the whole art world in the way we know it because obviously coronavirus has basically disseminated the art world, you know. It doesn't exist as we once knew it to exist in that type of way. So I think there's an opportunity there, but I think it just reflects, right? Beeple did really well because Beeple has 1.8 million followers on Instagram. There's no, unless I'm, I don't know, I, I'm, I might somehow get a lucky break and people saw me. I don't think I'm going to get, have an NFT art auction and I'm going to make 3.5 mil, mm. you know? So I think there's still that thing, right? Your audience and how much you can make. And because I think that was a sell. People made 3.5 mil. Oh my God, if I join this, I'll make 3.5 mil as well. <laughs> I think there's a, a lot of many things that needs to happen. Mm. But it's a new space. I'm interested in it. I'm interested in digital fashion and digital collectibles. I'm interested in seeing where that goes. I'm excited by it. Um, I'm putting this out there for any of you fashion brands, anyone who wants to hire me or hire us to do digital fashion stuff, let me know. Um, <laughs> I'm interested in it. But one of the things I wanted to make point as well is that the carbon emissions of NFT art is the bit where I'm also kind of thinking about because, bruh, you know, to blockchain... The, the amount of power, electricity... Power energy, yeah. It needs is a lot, right? So the carbon impact of NFT art is going to be an area that also needs to be studied and understood. And also thinking about as us as you know creators, how do we create sustainably, but how do we also look after the environment as well? So that's one of the things, even working with AI and training an AI model, the carbon impact is immense. And so how do we also as we're working with these technologies and we're creating these new value streams, new currencies, new networks, new businesses, all of these things, 
But how do we make sure that we can do this in a sustainable way? And I think we, because maybe we don't see the technology, we don't see where it is hosted in some server in a very cold country somewhere and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Nobody understands that, bruh, we're also destroying the planet. So that's also the thing that comes to mind in that case of also something that needs to be spoken about a bit more. That sounds like a good problem for you guys to fix. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, write yourself a brief. Um, (laughs) Guys, this has been amazing. Um, Fascinating conversation um, covering, uh, you know, a a suitably broad number of topics, which, um, yeah, has has been wonderful. Uh, Just want to wrap up with, you know, two final questions. One uh, is anybody you'd recommend uh, that you'd like to hear on the show? Hmm. Ooh. I think Inca, Laurie, that's the first person that came to mind. <laughs> um, and who are they? Uh, um, Inca, Inca Laurie is a artist and a designer, and he designs, like, some of the most colourful, like, architectural buildings. He's designed interiors. He's designed a lot of... Let me, I send you his um, Instagram as well. He is just amazing. The way how he uses color, and he's also um, of Nigerian heritage. So I know that his Nigerian heritage just contribute a lot to the way how he thinks and how he sees the world. But that's my own. Richard, what about you? Um, very random. Um, but um, Zai Allen. He's the founder of um, Love Circular um, and it's essentially a startup that um, trains and coaches UX slash UI designers um, to kind of a junior level in less than 100 days. Um, and I'm really proud of him and what he's achieved. So, yeah, I think it would be great All right. to have a conversation with him and see his like thoughts on design and the future of design. Great. And final questions in terms of uh, advice, tips, uh, you know, takeaways, lessons learned. Anything that you you know, you, you live by, you would you know, you're, you're feeling you want to share for um, for the people listening. Um, if, if you're asking about business advice, uh, cash is king. I think that if I was to start this um, again, I would make sure that I have enough money in the bank to facilitate my exploratory um kind of business projects or whatever it is i'm working on and that's because i feel like when we were growing the company that was a huge like uh what's what's the like fawn in the back it was always like oh do we have money for this do we have money for that and i feel like a lot of our actions and decisions came from a place of desperation as opposed to strategically thinking and i feel like now that we're i guess working with large organizations and we're in many people's eyes somewhat successful we're now able to think more strategically about the decisions that we make and so sometimes a brief will come in and i'll look at it and i'll be like nope i don't want to do that it's it's, it's not it's not going to pay me enough or it's going to be too much strain for the team um whereas when covid started for example we were taking all the projects that we could because we just didn't know what would happen we had clients or we had potential clients that were like yeah i want to work with you i want to have a conversation so like nope we're not allowed to talk to any agencies at the moment we'll talk later um so yeah i think for me financial stability is definitely a priority yeah so okay that's richard's one and mine just to end it off um is we started 
obviously 18, 19, we started young. And uh, I think one of the good things, I, I think that there is, uh, yeah, age is an interesting one. I think I would say that if he can if he can do this with no pressure as much as I don't <laughs> Okay, let me take that back. I think the best thing I would say is to live a life of experimentation. I think personally for me, that's that's the only thing I really care about is how I can live a life of experimentation. That's like my goal. It's just to constantly keep experimenting, experimenting. And like Richard said, being able to, you know, one of the things about money, right? I also agree with that cash is king thing is that money gives us a space to breathe. It gives us a space to less worry and it gives us a place to experiment, you know? Um, so I think for me, it's just encouraging people to live a life of experimentation. Um, try not to fit a box. You know, I think the concept of the portfolio career is really interesting. And I just encourage people to like be what you need to be and do what you need to do. This is the do-it-yourself. Um, this is the you know, do-it-yourself economy in a way. You know, I think we definitely came off of doing it yourself economy. You know, we built our whole business off social media. So like, you know, that, that's the that 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 is yeah my whole understanding is just live a life of experimentation as much as you can and yeah that's that's my own i'll subscribe to that (laughs) um thanks guys this has been uh as i said a totally um yeah what informative and entertaining uh and just to really hear your stories um and just before we wrap up if someone does want to get in contact with you what's the uh what's the best way um hello at community.xyz email um or our twitter page which is community um on twitter is community underscore lab um the only reason why we have the lab there was because community i think it was already being used as a domain and i didn't want community uk or anything so i thought yeah community underscore lab so it's interesting over the years that people put community lab onto our name so i'm saying to richard that we might as well just own it now and put community lab to our name as well <laughs> um on instagram it's also community.lab um i do mm-hmm. like the, the, the dot better if to allow dots i would make it dots but that's the best way to keep in touch um with us and richard's twitter or instagram is richie rich ldn so richie rich ldn and that's me. Mine is Lex Makes Things on Twitter and on Instagram it's Lex Makes Things dot fun. So that's how you can kind of keep in touch with us. Sweet. Guys, um, thanks again. Uh, I wish you every success on your projects. Um, yeah, we're certainly going to be keeping an eye on uh, as you guys grow and um, yeah, how this all evolves. Thank you so much. Thank you for Thank your time. You. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, know. you for having us. Yeah, that's really fun.